Our scripture reading for this morning is found starting in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. That's found on page 1133 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and I'll be reading through to chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms or the heavenlies in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our King, Christ Jesus, you are seated in the heavenlies, which, as Mark reminds us, is not some place far off, but is nearer than breath, nearer than bones. You rule and you reign in a way that is only obvious for those with eyes to see. Give us those eyes, Lord. By your Spirit, unite us with Christ. Transform us. Make us alive to you. And be with our brother Mark as he helps us to understand and to see by your spirit that's at work, who is at work in him. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Yuri, and thank you, family of Yuri, um, for this worship that you've offered this morning. Or led us in worshiping. I'm not aware of anything in the Bible that promises or indicates or otherwise intimates that we should expect anything from God apart from faith, through our, apart from his grace, rather, through our faith in him. I was reminded as Yuri was just reading our passage for this morning, one of the most daunting verses that I know of in the Bible, it's Romans 14 and verse 23, apart from faith, everything is sin, or whatever is not done in faith is sin. Wow. That means our eating, that means our sleeping, that means our working, that means our relating, that means our hearing a, a, a message preached, that means a message preached. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14, 23, check it out. And I am not aware of anything in the Bible that promises or indicates or otherwise intimates that we should expect anything from God apart from his grace through our faith in him. We do know and we do accept beyond question his providential grace. And that is God's sun shines and his rain falls on the fields of the good and the evil, the believing and the unbelieving, the just and the unjust. And there are times in which this confounds us beyond human comprehension, or at least it should. For example, 
Why was Hugh Hefner allowed to live out his lavish and brazenly hedonistic lifestyle for most of his 91 years? But someone's child just died of cancer at Children's Hospital this morning. God's providential grace is as close to an undisputed given as anything we know, and yet we frequently do not understand it or sometimes even agree with it. But his particular grace, his personal intervention in, on one's behalf, that requires faith. And so far as I can tell, and so far as I know what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation, there is nothing that we can expect from God apart from his grace through faith. But there are many potential hindrances to a true biblical Christian faith, too. I've just mentioned two of them, the practical workings of God's general grace and the success of the selfish and the suffering of the innocent. Such can present for us huge hindrances. That is, apart from an overriding trust in God's sovereign goodness and grace and faith and trust in his ability to intervene or not, and that he does so wisely, justly, for our good, for the good of others, and for the glory that is to come. Last week, we began looking at another more unconscious hindrance to a true biblical Christian faith, which is that most well-meaning Christians and well-meaning churches suffer from a lack of understanding and appreciation of our relationship to God's people, Israel. It's not that we Christians and churches mean to be ignorant or ungrateful for our shared heritage with Israel. Who intends to be ignorant or unappreciative? In reviews of our historical roots, i.e. the Old Testament, we readily acknowledge and even celebrate that our faith is grounded in and dependent on Israel's relationship with the one true and living God. But then we tend immediately to move on, forgetting that Israel's relationship with this same true and living God who sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Jewish Messiah, Savior of the world and king over all creation, continues. God's covenant with Israel was and is eternal, which means it continues on today and will continue on into eternity in Christ. So rather than persist in our ignorance or lack of appreciation for Israel's place and purpose in the world, as well as our own salvation history, we should try to learn and to grow and to increase both in our understanding of and in our appreciation for a more whole faith, a truly biblical Christian faith. One more thing before we get started. There is an opposite mistake that many, especially fundamentalist Christians and Christian churches make, which is to make everything all the time about the nation state of Israel most especially their politics and many peculiar understandings of prophecy, though Israel is important to understanding true biblical prophecy. But, but, there is not a one-for-one -one correlation between the biblical Israel and the modern state of Israel, or its policies, or its leaders, or even all its people, whether from biblical Old Testament history 
or since Christ according to the New Testament, or now. This is just one of the reasons that the passage from Romans 9 that that Pastor Yuri referred to two Sundays ago is so important to us today and deserves much more of our attention. From verse 1, Romans chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul speaking here by the Holy Spirit, I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of, or rather than, is what he means, rather than my brothers and sisters, my kinsfolk according to the flesh, meaning through biological birth they are Jewish, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, According to the flesh, that is, through biological Jewish birth, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, not Ishmael, this is his point, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, those born biologically, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this truth, especially that last part about the children of promise being counted as the children of God, dovetails perfectly with the previous truth in Romans 8, which speaks to the Jews and Gentiles alike, who make up the whole people of God, when it says, from verse 12, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, and I'm convinced he means Jews and Gentiles alike, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or as firstborn sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That was Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. So quite literally from these two chapters, Romans 8 and 9, or perhaps four chapters, Romans 8 through 11, the text is speaking of a believing Israel and a believing church, and not just a belief in God in some general sense, but believing in God in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And just to set the last stone into place, this explains entirely why Paul, by the Holy Spirit, would say very early on in our magisterial book of Romans, verse 16 of chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. For in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So we have it. The New Testament biblical Israel and all adopted children of God are those who've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, reborn and led by the Spirit of God, and actively trust God and his sovereign goodness and grace in response to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, equipped with this background truth, we can enter into that stream of biblical Christian faith and, and bring others with us, keeping in mind the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's not either or. It's not Jews reach Jews and Gentiles reach Gentiles. Rather, we should do our best to be involved in ministries to outreach to both Jews first and then us, that is, Gentiles. Finally, a vital question did crop up last week after our service, after our message, in conversation with some friends concerning God's choosing us before the foundation of the world and our predestination for salvation. I may not have provided either sufficient clarity or sufficient substance. I didn't major on it last week, and it's a pretty big topic. So I may not have given enough to um, have any sort of clear understanding of it, although I don't understand it entirely myself. That's just my confession to you. But we did read in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, God chose us in Christ. It actually says he chose us in him, meaning God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I don't know, but that pretty much takes our choice out of it. Not that we don't make a choice in this life, but this is God's work first. But hold your, hold your judgment there for a second. Verse 5, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope, and Paul is talking about himself and the apostles and those first early Christians, almost all of them were Jewish before the diaspora, and then, and then the, the church exploded out around the Mediterranean basin. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This topic or concept falls under the biblical theological heading, the doctrine of election, meaning those whom God chooses are called to salvation in scripture as God's elect. And as we'll see later this morning, we're called to a good bit more than merely being saved. That's an important part of the package. Now, last Sunday, I cited 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, which I read a little bit ago, and it urges us all, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The sense here is not that we can keep ourselves saved. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But rather, Peter is urging us to make sure that our confessions, our conduct, and our standing before God are consistent. They correspond to each other. They give evidence to each other. They give testimony that is consistent with one another. Something like 25 years ago, maybe more, I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. Patrick Morley published an award-winning, best-selling book entitled The Man in the Mirror. Has anybody ever heard of that book? Anybody read that book? That book also launched him in, in, onto the Promise Keeper circuit for several years, and he's quite an excellent speaker as well. 
But Morley followed up on that massively successful book with what I thought was an even better one, though it didn't get as much attention. The second book was entitled The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life. In seven seasons, he wrote something I've not forgotten. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is pretty close. I, I just, I, I couldn't find the book, so, but this is pretty close because I've read it many, many times. We do our best when we keep our Bibles, our beliefs, and our behaviors in alignment with each other. If we can maintain a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one correspondence between our Bibles, our beliefs, and our behaviors, we can be confident that we are following Jesus Christ and living a consistently Christian life and witness. Being diligent to make our calling and election sure, as another version puts it, speaks not of somehow keeping ourselves saved, but about giving evidence to the reality and testimony to the fact that we are God's children, that we are adopted and indwelt by God's Spirit, and that we are right now, and so long as we live, will be being conformed to the image and character of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is the work of the Word and the Spirit within His followers. Speaking of being predestined and conformed to the image and character of Jesus Christ, we read something very similar to, from Romans chapter 8, once again verses 28, 29, and 30, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now notice this what we're predestined to because of his foreknowledge of us, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. And many struggle with these concepts, God choosing to and for himself a people from eons ago or God predestining those whom he foreknew, even because of his grace. For some reason, that's more problematic to many than, say, totally scurrilous and depraved people somehow blindly finding their way back to a righteous and holy God in an unlikely moment of humility and clarity. Why is that? Why might it be more acceptable and make more sense to us than a bad person, many bad persons, any bad person, all bad persons might choose, must choose a good, holy, and loving God in order to be saved than it does that a good, holy, and loving God might choose from among any bad persons he wants out of his sovereign will, grace, love, and mercy to his glory forever. Amen. I would suggest two basic reasons we tend to reject such clear biblical truth. First, we want to plausibly maintain the fiction that we are fundamentally good people and out of our goodness we choose to go with God. If that's where we come from, it's a complete delusion and not at all what the Bible teaches. In fact, the opposite of that. 
And secondly, we want to maintain our own sovereignty so God the Holy Spirit can draw us all he wants, but we reserve the ultimate say for ourselves and for others. Now, to be fair, we might also ask questions such as, why me and not my loved one? Why you and not my loved one? Why that person who heard the gospel once and not my friend that I've prayed for and brought to church with me for decades? Why us and not our neighbors? Why the Jews and not the Arabs? All are unanswerable except by God's good and sovereign will. And along with Ephesians 1, which we read and we worked over last week, this passage in Romans 8 is perhaps the best to study, meditate on, and pray through on these matters of God choosing us from ages ago and not others, foreknowing us and not others, and predestining us unto salvation and not others, unto conformity to Christ, that we should become or be holy and blameless before him. This might be a good time to take a pause and to process the central truth of our message for this morning. Here it is. You've got it written there in the upper left-hand corner of your bulletins. Salvation comes, has always come, will always come by way of God's sovereign grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And by Jesus Christ, we mean his person, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection and intercession, all of that rolled up into a person in the Godhead, God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And when we say comes, has always come, will always come by way of God's sovereign grace through faith in Jesus Christ, what we mean is that even those in the Old Testament were looking forward to the event that would, that would redeem them, that is, Jesus Christ offering himself on the cross for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2 and 2. And we're looking back at that same event. But we're also continuing to experience and receive benefits from that finished work that now to us is in the past but continues to do its work into the future. Salvation comes, has always come, will always come by way of God's sovereign grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his person, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his intercession for us before the Father, even as we breathe. Now, for me, one of the most helpful principles and definitions over the years for word ministry has been fides quarens intellectum, meaning faith-seeking understanding or faith-seeking intelligence. It's the theological method stressed by Augustine, who was a church, an early church leader, he lived from 354 to 430 AD, and Anselm of Canterbury, who you might also have heard of, he was born around 1033, died in 1109, and others more contemporary. By it, faith-seeking understanding, we Christians begin with faith. We begin with belief in God in Christ Jesus. And from there, from our faith on the basis of our biblical Christian belief, do we move into further understanding of Christian truth? You see, we don't ask answer, we don't ask questions in order to poke holes on faith. We ask questions from the position of faith seeking truth. Faith seeking understanding. It's the most concise 
and best uh, definition of theology that I know of. So much of our thinking, though, including for Christians and especially for skeptics and other unbelievers, seems to be exactly the opposite approach, something like unbelief or skepticism seeking disproof. Or show me first and maybe I'll eventually consider it later. And this is very true, and especially for Christians, on matters we don't understand from the Bible or that rub us the wrong way, or, or perhaps it's Bible, but it's also practiced by some sect wrongly or in a way that puts us off, and so we don't want to be associated with them, so we put it on the shelf. And such is often the case with God's good and sovereign will, as it is often juxtaposed with human agency, so-called, or predestination set against the so-called free will of man, we can easily slip into postures of that's not what I believe or I'm ever going to believe or prove it and maybe I'll consider it or a practical unbelief or skepticism seeking disproof that supports my own view. But we ought to be in a posture and I trust that we are in a posture of faith first then understanding follows. In other words, we should never stop learning and making biblical Christian adjustments to what we think we know. So I'd like to, for us to turn now to the text in Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2, and look at it for just the next few minutes. And, and as we turn there, let's think about this first, what I might call a, a major point of truth. Here it is. Salvation, eternal life, and the faith to bring it about must be a total work of God. From beginning to end. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So last week we looked at chapter 1 and it is an incredible revelation of the working of God toward two purposes. That is the redemption of all his creation, most especially human beings, but his whole creation and his own glory. And I'm going to jump up in my reading just a little bit further or closer to the beginning than, than Yuri read earlier uh, in verse 11. In him that is in Christ, and in him or in Christ is the most important phrase in this entire book and certainly in these first couple of chapters because everything happens in him. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him that is in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him that is in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And last week, I just, I just wanted to pause here and make sure that we understood when we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. It didn't happen sometime later in the future. It happened when we believed. Verse 13, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So then in verse 15, we have this little, this little three-word, very important phrase, for this reason. So, so 
considering all that I've just said, and I mentioned to you uh, last week that verses 3 through 14, one sentence in the Greek text. One sentence. It's as if Paul can't get it out quickly enough on the page. One running sentence, verse 3 to verse 14. I have read it that way aloud from this pulpit. I won't do it right now. It's quite a challenge for both of us, I think. But for this reason, verses 3 through 14, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of, your Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the, wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what, the, what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious grace in the saints. So we've got for this reason in verse 15, and then we've got in verse 16, and, watch the ands here, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Verse 1 of chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. These all go together. These are all connected to each other. You can draw a line, as I have here in my own text, from for this reason to the and and the and and the and, because all of them flow one into the other. We do not have the capacity, the wisdom, or the ability to choose God, repent of our sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the first place. We're dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our flesh or our bodies and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we don't have the ability to keep ourselves saved once we are. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, and that's why we need his sealing from the moment we believe until the moment we depart this life. Or we'd be lost over and over and over again. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 is essential for us to understand the great grace, love, and mercy with which God intervened on our behalf in Christ. And he gives it to us before then informing us of our true estate and need before the one true and living God apart from Christ. We are dead apart from him. So by the time we get to chapter 2, we can see we don't need a reformation project to bring us up to code. We need a resurrection because we were dead, dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. And chapter 2 becomes an explanation or even an illustration of why chapter 1 must insist that it's God who chooses, it's God who determines, and it's God who intervenes for us in Christ because we're dead. 
And with all this background, I think we'll be able to see this, at least in a preliminary way, by drawing our attention to the ands, as I just did, of the last half of chapter 1, beginning with, for this reason, in verse 15, we can begin to see the glorious work of God in saving any of us, let alone all of us. So if we are to make our understanding and practice of the Bible's teaching increasingly biblical and increasingly Christian, which I've committed myself to and invite you to join me in it, then we must understand, accept, teach, and proclaim that salvation, eternal life, and the faith to bring it about must be a total work of God from beginning to end because we were dead in our trespasses and sins before his intervention. But that's not all, believe it or not, though we're, we're getting there. Our second major truth is this. Look with me at verse 4. But God. We'll come back to the but here in a minute. It's one of the biggest buts in the whole Bible. But uh, we'll, we'll add a little bit clarification that was really fun that I learned this week as I looked at the Greek text. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. We, we can't miss it here. And, and I can illustrate it by, by a simple question. What can corpses do volitionally? Nothing. They can't speak. They can't choose. They can't walk. They can't sin. They can't do anything. Corpses are dead. They do not have life in them. And the description of us before Christ, without Christ, is that we are walking dead people, spiritually dead. And if God does not intervene, and if he had not intervened in Christ Jesus, we would be eternally dead, lost, without hope and without God in the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, you may have noticed that my whole second point is nothing more and nothing less than verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2. And that was deliberate, as Gimli said in The Lord of the Rings, because I, I don't know how we could say it any better or any more concisely, but I do want us to take note of two phrases that govern the direction of the whole passage, but God and in Christ. Everything that God did for us was in Christ, and everything despite what we've done, God did to save us out of our spiritual death. And there in verse 4, the fun thing that I, that I learned, and, and you can get it just in the footnote uh, down below probably, um, but the actual word there is and, which connects it all the way back with verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, then verse 19, and, then verse 22, and, then verse 1 of chapter 2, and, then verse 4, and God being rich in mercy. So, so the contrast is helpful, but God, 
But in the actual text, it's and, which can be, according to context, translated either and or but. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it does take a little bit away from the flow of the argument when it's and, 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 and God, after all of that, and God being rich in mercy. So then we, we can see why chapter 1 was required, I think. Because verses 1 through 3 describe our helpless estate and the condition of our existence before Christ. But God would not and did not leave us walking dead in our trespasses and sins. He could, and so he did something about it in Christ. I hope we're seeing this. I hope we're getting this. I hope we're learning something here. And finally, here's our last point of truth, and we'll be done. It's number three. It's equally profound. Just as surely as God chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, from verse 4 of chapter 1, to be saved by his glorious grace in Christ Jesus, God prepared beforehand. Not God is preparing. God prepared beforehand. And I think that connects all the way back to since before the foundation of the world. God prepared past tense, simple past tense, beforehand, specific and eternally good works for us his adopted children, to live by and to do in our place and time. Look with me there, verse 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2, 4. Okay, so God has done his work, and here's why, 4, verse, verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, simple past tense, it's already done, beforehand, that we should walk in them. God did not choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we could go to heaven only. Jesus Christ did not condescend to our level, put on flesh, spend time teaching us and showing us how to live, sacrifice himself to death, even death on a cross, and entrust himself to his heavenly Father and his Holy Spirit to work together to raise him from the dead, merely to give us a seat in heaven, wherever that is. And I'll bet some of you never ever heard anything like that. Often I hear Christians speaking of heaven as some sort of cosmic retirement plan for which they immediately began preparing from the moment they got saved. I'm talking about a Christian version of what we used to call in the army the road program, as in, oh, you can't depend on him, he's on the road program. Road meaning retired on active duty. Heaven is not a glorified version of a retirement home, and there's no retiring from the Christian life. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the concept is not in Scripture. Sixty-six books, you won't find retirement in a single verse. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared beforehand. 
that we should walk in them, that is, we should live in them and we should do them so long as we may live. So as we conclude this morning, I'd, I'd like to ask each of us to contemplate a single question as we finish. Now, don't ask the Lord to give you an answer for your spouse or your friend or your kids or your neighbor or even for the whole congregation. Ask the Lord Jesus himself to give you a specific and personal answer to this question. Are you ready? That's not the question. Here's the question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, there are a number of branches that could come off from that question. I'm just going to leave it there. Why are you here? According to God's word. According to your calling, your election, how can you be diligent to make sure that it's true? Why are you here? This has been Salvation by God's Sovereign Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Second in the mini-series, Israel, the Church, and the whole people of God, which we'll endeavor to finish out next Sunday. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your Holy Spirit that opens our ears and our minds and our, the eyes of our souls. I pray that you would continue to do your work this week as we process what we've heard here today, what we've spoken here today. And with regard to this question that was offered just at the end, just at the end, why are we here? Lord, would you answer that question for us? It's the only way we'll get the, the answer right. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, God's people Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this worship. We thank you for friends coming back. We thank you for new friends. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing on our behalf for our good and for your glory. Help us to receive it. Help us to be in a position of faith to, to believe it and to live it, doing, being, living those good works that you have prepared for us beforehand. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next, next time, good morning. <laughs>